This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we jump in, as always, it's great to see you. I feel like I haven't talked to you or got to see you in a while because of that trip to Michigan and stuff like that. So it's very good to be hanging out with you. How are you? How's your week? How's everything in Olivia world since I've been gone? Everything's going really good. I think I'm finally recovered from COVID because COVID got me a few weeks ago um, and kind of had some some illness after that. But I think I'm doing pretty good. I'm in week five of my marathon training. So I'm trucking along, working like usual. How are you? How was your trip? It was good. It was a sad thing to go for, but it was nice to go home and you know see my family. It was a very short trip, but it was good to be able to go and, and kind of see everybody and be there for a friend. So now you're training for a marathon. Is that to like run to a marathon gas station? Because I know you're not talking about like running a marathon marathon. No, 26.2. I have decided to lose my mind a little bit and run a full marathon. Yeah, I've said this before, but you come from a family of crazy people that are like, let's just run. Yeah, have you seen the meme that's like getting married to the family that runs the the turkey trot on Thanksgiving morning? No, I have not seen it. <laughs> it's probably something that I would miss. That running meme doesn't come across your social media. Anyways, there's some sort of meme that's like, don't marry the family that makes you get up and run on Thanksgiving morning. Well, that's my family. 
Yeah, the only running memes that I get are like, make sure you're running to Dunkin' Donuts for the new <laughs> double chocolate glazed. Hey, I had a donut today. I rewarded myself. Well, you know, if you're going to be trained like that, you definitely have to give yourself a little bit of a treat or else, you know, you'll go crazy. Yeah. Well, what do you have for us this week? What are we talking about? You sent me the, the, the podcast notes, but I honestly haven't gone through them yet. So this week I'm bringing a case from my home state in Michigan. It was one that I kind of forgot about. And as I was going through and researching what I wanted to do for this week, it kind of popped into my head. And I remember the time that it happened. I remember it being all over the news. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we get in. But I think it's going to be a heavy hitter. I think you're going to enjoy it. Hopefully the listeners do too. So should we go ahead and jump into this week's episode? Yeah, let's hear it. So this week we are talking about Tara Grant. This week's case begins in Macomb County, Michigan in 2007. Now, for a little geography, southern Macomb County borders Detroit, but the northern part of Macomb County has a more rural, small-town feel to it. There's a lot of apple orchards, farmers, things like that. Now, in Macomb County, missing persons report tend to be rather few and far between in the area and mostly come from parents whose kids may be out too late. But that would change on Valentine's Day 2007. Stephen Grant walked into the police station to file a missing persons report on his wife, Tara. She had not been seen in five days. 34-year-old Tara Lynn Grant was an executive at Washington International and was considered to be a successful businesswoman. Tara split her time working out of an office in Puerto Rico and flying home on the weekends to be with her family. On Friday, February 9th, Tara arrived at Detroit's Metro Airport after a stint in Puerto Rico. According to her husband, Stephen Grant, Tara had returned home, but the couple had gotten into an argument because she planned to fly back for work a day earlier than expected. Stephen told authorities that Tara had unpacked one bag of luggage and immediately packed another. He described the argument to police and shared that it ended with Tara saying she was leaving and she wasn't coming back. According to Stephen, Tara made a phone call to arrange for someone to pick her up from the home. He heard Tara say that she'd be out in a minute before she left the home around 11.15. Stephen told police that Tara was last seen leaving the house that night in a dark-colored sedan. Now, Stephen did call Tara's boss and mother to check on her whereabouts, but admits to police that he may have waited too long to file a missing persons report. Grant said that he had held off because he figured Tara would come home after taking some time to cool down. It was now five days since anyone had contact with Tara Grant. The missing persons report was then handed over to detectives to begin the investigation. They got to work quickly by calling Tara's friends and family to see if anyone had seen her. They also wanted to know if her disappearance after a fight may be normal behavior for her. Additionally, investigators made a visit to the Grant home the same night, but found nothing unusual. So I just want to stop there because I know, you know, obviously I'm married. I know you're not married, but we've both been in relationships I've had arguments where, you know, one person's left five days is a long time to be gone and not make any contact with your spouse or your boyfriend or anything like that. Yeah, that's odd. Five days is a long time. Even if she like was traveling for work or whatever, like you still say, hey, like I know things are rough, but love you. Talk to you tomorrow or let me know when you're ready to talk. And you usually get a response, especially from a husband and wife. Right. You just need some time to cool off something of that nature, but you're not five days like off the map, no contact at all. Now the Grants lived in an upscale neighborhood and it seemed to be the type of home a couple would raise their children in. At this point, detectives met the Grants' children as well as their 19-year-old au pair, Verena Durkis. 
Verena had migrated from Germany and been working for the Grants for some time. While one detective spoke with Stephen, another spoke with Verena. She remembered being out on the evening that Tara Grant returned home from her trip. When Verena came home later in the evening, she recalled Stephen being very upset when she arrived. According to Verena, he thought it was Tara coming home after the argument. She also shared that Grant had told her about the argument with Tara that evening and that she was never coming back. At this point, detectives also checked the family's computer and bank statements for any trace as to where Tara may have been. As part of the protocol, detectives asked Stephen Grant to take a polygraph test the next day. According to detectives, Grant was offended by the request but agreed. They assured Grant that if he was a suspect, they would be taking him in. So again, at this point, you're not really sure what to think, right? I mean, yes, he waited five days, but he's being cooperative with authorities. It's as I was researching it and, you know, thinking about if I didn't know anything about this case, I, you know, really wouldn't know where it was going. Yeah. And I was kind of, when you brought in Verena, I was kind of thinking, okay, so this is going to be killed his wife for the au pair. I thought more would be brought to fruition saying like, oh, he thought I was Tara when I came home. He got aggressive, et cetera, et cetera. But it obviously didn't go that way. Yeah, and as the story unravels, it kind of gets more layered and things like that. So I'm excited to to get through it with you. And, and uh, again, hopefully that's the same feeling for the listeners. So many people spoke to detectives about Tara's background. She was hardworking and professional. Tara was dedicated to both her work and her family and balanced both pretty well. Tara Lynn Grant grew up in rural northern Michigan. Tara was in the 4-H club and raised animals in a very simple upbringing, but she aspired for more and longed to leave the area. College offered her the chance at a career and more opportunities. It was during her time in college that Tara met Stephen Grant, and they ended up married with two children. Stephen worked at his father's machine shop. He was a jokester with a playfulness about him that attracted Tara to him. She had high aspirations for herself. When Tara was hired with the Washington Group, she quickly climbed the ranks and became the point person for the company's operations in Puerto Rico. Tara strived to be successful in her career, but also at home. Now, while Stephen Grant did agree to take a polygraph test, his lawyer had concern about his rights. In cases like these, the husband usually becomes the first suspect investigators look into. On February 15th, police received a call from Grant's attorney informing them that he would not be appearing for the polygraph. Additionally, the lawyer requested that all questions and contact go through him. Now, this was a red flag for detectives. Some believe Grant may have had something to do with Tara's disappearance, while others weren't so sure. As they continued to investigate, they found that Tara's company credit card was last used to pay a toll leaving the airport. But that was the only hit they could get. Other than that one credit card transaction, detectives were totally in the dark. They then began to look at Tara's phone records and were alarmed when they found no calls were made since her disappearance. If Tara did in fact leave, she would have certainly used her cell phone or credit card to make arrangements, purchase a plane ticket, call a friend to stay with, or things of that nature. But police do find voicemails on Tara's phone from Stephen Grant. In fact, there were several voicemails from Stephen. He was pleading for Tara to come home, wanting to know why she left. Then he would take an angry tone and say things like, I can't believe you're doing this to your children. But detectives still had questions about how Tara left and how the black sedan fit into the puzzle. 
At this point, they began calling every limo and car service in the area that would run to the airport. There was no record of any driver showing up at the Grant's residence. They also began to question whether or not the black sedan picking up Tara was even likely. There were no calls to a car company, either on her cell phone or her home phone. And what is very interesting to me is that this is a time before Uber, right? Like 2007, if there was Uber or Lyft, I don't think it was anywhere near as prominent as what it is now. I don't think it existed. That's the year I graduated high school. Shout out, class of 2007. Yeah, but. yeah. I graduated in 2004, and there was definitely not Lyft or yeah. Uber or anything like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, this was different where you actually had to call and be like, I need a car to come pick me up. Social media was hardly like, I mean, we had Facebook at that point um, for anybody, but there wasn't anything like what we have now. Yeah, we had MySpace and all that. You would have been in my top eight. I would have put you in there. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. About number four. What would it be about number four? Oh. Top, top four. Yeah, you'd be Maybe in top, top five. Four. Top five. In top four. Detectives also called and searched every hotel near Detroit's metro airport. Still, no sign of Tara Grant. Detectives were also able to verify that Tara did not return to Puerto Rico. Stephen claimed that the argument was over Tara leaving early to head back to work, but investigators were able to determine that Tara had not changed her flight time or any travel arrangements. It is at this time that the Macomb County Police Department holds a press conference. In the press conference, they share a description of Tara and ask the public to come forward with any information on her disappearance. Now, this is not necessarily a traditional move. Normally, investigators would want to keep the public at bay while working the case, but detectives hope that Tara may be watching and learn that someone was in fact looking for her. And this is something that we have kind of touched on before, especially in the calls from the killer episode. This is kind of a latched ditch if you can't find the person that you're looking for you know, you have to turn to the public, but it's something that, you know, we tend to try not to do if we don't have to. Right. Yeah. You don't want to get them all hyped up or worried about something. Or, you know, leak any information or anything like that to the public that, you know, you would want to play close to the chest. At this point, tips began flooding in. Tara was seen out of state or getting into a car at a local spot, or even that she was on the previous night's episode of Wheel of Fortune. As detectives continued to work the tips coming in, Stephen Grant was holding daily press conferences with his attorney. Stephen would plead for anyone with information to come forward or for Tara to come home. Grant would become emotional during these press conferences, and the press took notice. Because of this, the press actually wrote more stories and public interest continued to grow. The community seemed torn on whether Tara had left and disappeared of her own free will or if something more sinister may have happened to her. A woman leaving her successful job and family to knowingly disappear was not very common or likely, but foul play would be. But if this was a case of foul play, who could be involved? Detectives racked their brains for answers to that very question. Tara was missing, but there was no evidence pointing to a crime. A week had passed and you couldn't turn on the TV without hearing about the Tara Grant disappearance. All the while, Stephen Grant continued to hold press conferences. He was speaking to reporters every day about information that was coming in from sources and authorities. Typically, a victim's family would not want to be on camera or in that public spotlight, and it's considered normal for a family to want to grieve and work through a trauma like this in private. But Stephen wanted to be front and center. So let me ask you this. What are your thoughts with Stephen Grant holding press conferences every day, kind of wanting to be in the spotlight and talking to all these reporters and things like that. Where's your mind at right now? 
I mean, if you think about cases like Natalie Holloway, her parents were in the spotlight the whole time, getting her name out there, getting her name out there. And that was probably just a few, that was around that same time. I think it's odd that if he's a father and there's kids involved, that he's not spending more time with like comforting his children and reassuring that mom's going to come back, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not too concerned about him being in the public eye. I think it could go either way. Yeah. And again, just kind of walking through it, I was thinking about the thoughts that I was having and like, cause this happened in 2007, I was three years out of high school. So this was very much a refresher for me. And so as I was going through, I was like, okay, like I remember this, but I don't remember that. And I kind of found myself trying to like balance where I thought it was going. Chatter in the community began to grow slowly around the water cooler and local businesses. People would ask, do you think Stephen Grant did it? Detectives were also observing Stephen's radio and television appearances. They studied what he said, how he acted, and tried to get inside of Grant's mind. According to Stephen, he was Mr. Mom at home, taking care of the kids, all while Tara was absent, traveling back and forth to Puerto Rico. Grant portrayed Tara as someone who cared more about her career than her family. At this point, reporters even began questioning Grant about his involvement with one asking if he thinks that he should be a suspect. At this point, investigators noted that Stephen would routinely stop at the gas station across from the police department. They asked the owner for a copy of the surveillance tapes and found that Grant would walk in and buy any newspaper with his face on the cover. Police believe that Grant was attempting to determine what the police knew and how he was being portrayed in the media. They also found it odd that Grant would be so close to the police station but never stop in to ask how the investigation was going. Then, on February 21st, 2007, things began to change. A former girlfriend of Stephen Grant contacted a local reporter. She brought with her copies of emails sent by Grant shortly before Tara's disappearance. Now, the emails were sexual in nature and indicated that Tara was having an affair. Investigators were puzzled. Why would someone who portrays themselves as a family man attempt to damage the reputation of his missing wife. Because of the sexual aspects of the email, many began to question the relationship between Stephen Grant and their 19-year-old au pair, Verena Durkis. Uh-huh, uh-huh, mm. uh-huh. See if it goes anywhere. Right. Now, at this point, police asked Verena candidly if she had any type of sexual relationship with Stephen Grant. Durkis denied the allegation, but doubts were raised when the company she was hired through suddenly sent her home to Germany. Detectives were burning to find out exactly what went on behind the closed doors of the Grant family home. So that was a little weird to me. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, are you sleeping with this guy? No. And then your company's like, you're going back to Germany. Go. Detectives were desperate to get back into the home and do a proper search, but that would mean a judge would need to sign a search warrant. To do this, police would need probable cause. Now, Grant didn't know this, but he had actually given police the information they needed to begin searching for exactly that. Grant shared that he and his family would frequently visit Stony Creek Park near their home. Police began to search the park on foot and with aerial coverage. Now, detectives at this point kept the search internal and did not share any information with the media or the public. But to the surprise of police... Stephen Grant asked to be part of the search. Detectives were confused because up until this point, he had not been willing to work with or share any information with them, and they denied him the ability to participate in the search. Unfortunately, 
Police did not find any evidence or sign of Tara Grant. Again, the police turned to the public. Detectives asked if anyone in the area is out walking a trail or in a park to be diligent and looking for potential clues or evidence. They urged the public to reach out if they found anything suspicious. Police were at a dead end and hoped the public request would bring them the help that they needed. As weeks passed, the police in the community began thinking more and more that Stephen Grant was involved in his wife's disappearance, but police still needed hard evidence. Stephen Grant's an odd guy. I'm interested to see how this case continues to go. And honestly, I'm sure if I like Googled pictures of Tara Grant, I'd probably remember this case. But just by names and like hearing the story, I can't, you know, think that I've ever heard this. Yeah, his behavior is definitely weird. And it's weird to the point where you really can't tell, like, did he have something to do with it? And he's just a grieving husband who wants his wife to come home or is he putting on a show for the public and trying to deflect from himself? It's it's all very layered. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's keep going. Let's. I want to hear what what happens. All right. Well, on February 28th, exactly three weeks since Stephen Grant reported Tara missing, Sheila Warner was out for a walk when she came across a plastic bag. At first sight, Sheila believed the bag to contain blood and latex gloves. Sheila was walking in the same area as Stony Creek Metro Park, and it grabbed the bag because she knew police were looking for anything suspicious. Investigators arrived at the scene and used what's called a field test kit. They were able to determine that the brownish red liquid in the bag was in fact blood. At this point, the evidence was sent to the Michigan State Police Crime Lab, and they were able to determine that the blood found was in fact human. Additionally, examiners found microscopic metal shavings in the bag. Now, with the evidence being found so close to the Grant home and the inconsistencies in Grant's story, police were finally able to obtain a search warrant. At 5 p.m. on March 2nd, police deployed a convoy to the Grant's home and the business that Stephen Grant worked at. Inside the home, investigators began their extensive search to find forensic evidence as Grant watched. He seemed nervous and wouldn't make eye contact with any of the officers. Because he was not under arrest, Grant said that he was excusing himself to walk the family dog. At this point, investigators noticed Grant heading towards his vehicle and immediately cut him off. Grant said that he needed his wallet, but detectives explained that he could not enter the vehicle as it was part of the search warrant. Frustrated, Stephen Grant began walking down the street alone without the family dog. While the crime lab technicians worked in the house, detectives stayed in the garage as to not interfere. While waiting, one of the detectives noticed a bin that they didn't recall seeing during the first visit to the home on February 14th. The detective opened the green bin and began to push down on the contents inside. Whatever was in the bag was soft and had give to it. They called the crime scene technicians to the garage to investigate the bin. As it began to sort through the contents, detectives noticed the same type of plastic bag found in the park. They could also see larger metal shavings inside of the bag, along with a pair of lady slacks. As they began to open the plastic bag to investigate the slacks, investigators were stunned when they saw a navel. It was the torso of a woman. No arms, no legs, no head, just the torso still clothed in the outfit that Stephen had described on the night that he filed Tara's missing persons report. I did not expect that to go this way. When I just read it was a torso of a woman. (laughs) All right, Stephen Grant is guilty. 
Yeah, and to just be in a trash can in your garage. It's just her torso. Where's the rest of her body? And their kids are living in this house, and their mother is just chopped up in the garage. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm in shock. Yeah, and imagine being a detective. You know what I mean? You're just standing in the room, and you're like... Just hanging out. Yeah. Wow. So immediately, police began looking for Stephen Grant. But an hour earlier, he had just walked off on his own. Police then began to comb the area, but he is nowhere to be found. A statewide bulletin is immediately issued to help locate Grant. Agents at the Canadian border were even notified in case Grant tried to flee the country. While the search for Stephen continued, a forensics team continued to investigate his father's machine shop. Now, because it was a tool and die shop, it was very, very messy and the scene was hard to process. I've actually worked in a tool and die shop. There is oil, dirt, grease, grime everywhere. It's very hard to keep clean, especially if, you know, it's an independent business and, you know, you're not really focused on like, I need this to look as good as it can. Yeah. However, authorities did find metal shavings that matched the ones found in the woods and in the bin in the Grant's home. Because of the evidence that was found, another search of Stony Creek Park was ordered. But this time, the search was much more extensive. Cadaver dogs were called in, and they were able to locate a human leg in an area that had not been previously searched. As they continued, about three-quarters of Tara Grant's remains, including her head, were discovered and taken to the county morgue. At this point, examiners began an autopsy to match the remains and determine the cause of death. It was found that her body had been cut with several large serrated blades. A large bruise on Tara's jawline indicated that she was struck in the face, and markings on her neck suggested manual strangulation. Stephen Grant, the man who beat, strangled, and dismembered Tara Lynn Grant, was still at large. The next day, police again held a press conference identifying Stephen Grant as the suspect in the disappearance and death of Tara Grant. Almost immediately, Grant's lawyer contacted authorities. He informed detectives that Grant had called him the night before, and he was almost certain that he was going to do something to harm himself. Stephen also contacted his sister and told her that he may be heading north to Wilderness State Park, where he and Tara had spent time in some secluded cabins. Verena Durkis, who again was the 19-year-old au pair, also contacted police from Germany to inform them that Stephen had made contact with her. Jerkis told police that Grant professed his love for her and explained that he had killed his wife by accident and because of this, they could never be together. Now, using the area code from the call with Jerkis, detectives were able to determine that the calls to Verena came from northern Michigan in the area where those same isolated cabins were located. Grant had borrowed a friend's truck before he was named as a suspect. So now police knew what vehicle to look for, but they found it abandoned in Wilderness State Park. They tracked footsteps from the truck, and at 6.30 the next morning, Stephen Grant was found. He was hiding under a fallen tree. Temperatures were near freezing, and Grant wore only pants, socks, and a shirt. Grant had been drinking and had frostbite, so he was airlifted from the state park. Wow, so much. So I was kind of right about the au pair in a sense that like, oh, he was going to kill his wife for the au pair. And we're going to dive into it a little bit more because we're going to talk a little bit about his confession and, and why he says he did it. But it takes a hard turn. 
You know what I mean? It goes from like, I'm not sure this guy could be involved. It could be this black sedan to like, okay, hard, right. This guy definitely did it. And it just accelerates super quickly. Stephen Grant was interrogated in a Northern Michigan hospital room on March 4th, 2007. Detectives pulled out a tape recorder as Grant began to describe the events leading to his arrest. Without emotion, Grant took detectives back to the night Tara returned from Puerto Rico. The couple had began to argue when Tara told Stephen she was planning to fly back a day early with her boss. Stephen became agitated as Tara would not stop what she was doing to acknowledge him. At that point, Stephen grabbed Tara by the wrist. Tara then responded by slapping Stephen across the face. At this point, Grant became enraged and punched Tara in the head. And that's where she had the bruising on the jawline on the side of the face that indicated she had been struck. Tara fell backwards and struck her head against the wall. Now, according to Stephen, at this point, Tara began yelling that she wanted a divorce and that he would never see his kids again. Angered by the idea that she would take his kids from him, he pushed Tara down and began to strangle her. After Tara passed away, Grant tied a belt around her neck, drug her body to the garage, and placed her into the trunk of his vehicle. Around this time, Grant heard Verena enter the home. This is the first time that Grant would tell the fictional story about the fight and Tara storming off. Grant also confirmed the sexual nature of his relationship with the family's au pair. He admitted that they had a sexual relationship, and that same evening they spent the night in his and Tara's bed. Oh my gosh. Stephen Grant, that's all I can say. He's awful. You murder your wife and then you share that bed with a 19-year-old that you're having an affair with? I feel like this is one of like the fictional like mystery thriller books that I read. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it feels like it's too out there to be a true story. Yeah. Now, Tara's body remained in the trunk of the car for the entire day of February 10th. On the 11th, Grant drove to his father's machine shop where he used several saw blades to dismember the body. Grant then shredded Tara's laptop and dropped it along with the saw blades in several dumpsters in the area on his way to Stony Creek Park. He then used his children's sled to pull Tara's remains through the park and hide them. I can't with this man. I cannot. I cannot. I'm just like literally in shock. I have never heard this story before. I just don't understand it. And maybe it's because, you know, I have empathy and compassion but like the idea of like using my child's toy to move a body like i would be crying you know what i mean like i was not something that i would just be able to easily do can we just go back to the fact that like parents get divorced all the time and custody battles happen but like unless they can prove you're a terrible parent you usually get joint custody so i don't understand why if she was threatening to take away the kids knowing that if this case went to court over a divorce and the children At that time, Stephen Grant wasn't a bad dad, so he would have had custody. He would have some sort of visitation or part-time custody of his children, I'm sure. Yeah, and we talked about that in the Kelsey Barrett episode where it's like, you know, people get divorced all the time and they can get nasty and stuff like that, but like. It's not worth killing somebody. A hundred percent. Dismembering their body and then using your child's sled to pull their mother's remains. Okay, keep going. Yeah, it's dark. Like, I was going through this, and I was like, I don't remember this story being as dark as it was, and that's why I was like, I think it's going to be a a heavy hitter for the show. Yeah. So after he used his children's sled to hide the remains, Grant then returned home to play the role of the concerned husband. 
When Grant learned that police were going to search the park, he went back. Feeling that he had not hidden the torso properly, Grant ventured back to recover it. He originally took Tara's torso to his father's shop, but he knew he couldn't leave it there. Grant brought the remains home in a plastic bin with the intention of disposing them the next day. But the following day is when the search warrant was issued and the remains were discovered. So had that search warrant not been issued when it was, he may have been able to discard the torso again. And what's interesting is as he was going through the confessions, he was saying like, I can't believe I'm going to get away with this. Like I'm getting away with this. Like he was even surprised. And I wonder if that is why, you know, he was like on TV doing this concern thing. Cause he's like, they're eating it up and I'm, I'm getting the sympathy and I'm going to get away with this, you know? Yeah. And they're never going to suspect me, especially if he can, if there's no body, there's no proof, you know? A hundred percent. Stephen Grant was charged with first degree murder and mutilation of a corpse. He pled guilty to the mutilation charge, but goes to trial for the murder. On December 7th, 2007, the trial began. Grant's defense argued that it was in fact second degree murder as it was not premeditated. However, the prosecution disagreed. They argued that in the four minutes it took to strangle Tara Lynn Grant to death, Stephen could have changed his mind and done the right thing. Additionally, the full audio confession was played from beginning to end. On Friday, December 21st, after three days of deliberation, Stephen Grant was found guilty of murder in the second degree. So he was able to get the jury to say, hey, we find you guilty of murder in the second degree, not the first degree murder charge. I don't get why it took three days of deliberation. He chopped up his wife, dismembered her, and placed her body in several different places. Right. And so he pled guilty to the mutilation. I think what this came down to was, did he plan to kill her or did he kill her in the moment because of something that had happened? Like he snapped and it wasn't premeditated. And I'm sure that's where the three days of deliberation came from because he's saying that like, oh, I just snapped in the moment she was going to take my kids away. But then, you know, you know that he's been having a relationship with the au pair. You know that there's emails that are out there that are sexual in nature as well. So I'm sure there was a lot of back and forth about. How is it? Is it me? Is it premeditated or not? Right. But like if he's guilty to mutilation, like, okay, I accidentally killed my wife. I didn't mean to. Let me call the cops. We got into a heated argument. I strangled her. He didn't have to dismember her. Hey, man, you're preaching to the choir. I'm just over here like, I mean, we deliberated for my case for basically maybe a day. Yeah, just a day. And there was no like eyewitness or anything. I just like I just three days. Like, what is there to talk about? He dismembered his wife. Well, and I'm sure that there was one person that was like, I want first degree murder. And then probably like a 12 angry men situation. But I did find it interesting that most of the cases that we do, it's like they deliberated for 38 seconds and. We're like, die. Right. And this one is right. like, it took three days. You it know? took three days to figure it out. Okay, keep going. Now, even though the jury bumped the conviction down to the second degree murder charge, as to almost compensate for the verdict, the judge exceeds the normal guidelines and sentences Stephen Grant to a minimum of 50 years in prison. During the trial, Stephen Grant showed no remorse or emotion. Now, six months after Grant's conviction, his father actually killed himself apparently having to come to work every day in this machine shop where your son killed your daughter-in-law. And from everything that I researched, like they had a good relationship. Mm -hmm. I guess it just broke his heart. He couldn't do it anymore. That's terrible. That's awful. 
And it also talks about like the ripple effect. You know what I mean? It's like, you look at it as like a husband who kills his wife, but then you've got all of this family that is involved. And yeah, we haven't even talked about like their children and stuff like during this whole thing. So it's, it's a whole family that's been uprooted. Yeah. And in 2015, Grant did attempt an appeal, but a judge found that he received a fair trial and there was no movement on it. Now, the Grant's two children were actually adopted by Tara's sister. Now, I know that we said, you know, we hadn't really talked much about the children, and I kind of saved this for the end, but today, Tara's children return to Macomb County every year for Tara's walk. For her children, it's a chance to remember their mom and bring awareness to domestic violence. Now, at this point, I believe this article that I read was in 2017, so it's years past. Both of the kids are in college, but they come home to Macomb County every year to do Tara's walk, which is a nonprofit, I believe, that raises awareness for domestic violence and things like that. So, you know, even though this terrible thing happened, they are still trying to be the positive in the world, which I know we've talked about this before. But when you do a story like this, it's always good to have like that one ray of sunshine that kind of cuts through all the darkness. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of like when they make like new laws and things. And, you know, at this point, neither child has had or wants to have contact with Stephen Grant. And just for anybody who's listening, as a reminder, if you or a family member is a victim of domestic violence, please call the domestic violence hotline at 800-799-7233. Again, that's 800-799-7233. We'll also put it in the show description. But if you need help, help is out there. They can help you plan you know, get out of that situation. So wanted to make sure that anybody who needs that number has it, but that's it, Olivia. That's this week's case. I say, you know, we kind of were both shocked as we were going through it. I say, we just go right into the deadbolt test. What are you thinking? Where does this fall for you? It's a 10. And I, you know, again, like you said, I'm not married, but I just don't understand how these spouses kill each other. And again, and again, it maybe it's because we have empathy, we have coping skills, things of that nature. But like I said, he could have gotten to a heated argument, accidentally strangled her, called the cops, said he was sorry, whatever. He has something wrong to the fact where he's like, oh, I killed my wife. Now I need to dismember her. I cannot get over the fact of they saw a navel and just a torso. I totally agree with you. It's one of those things where you would think, okay, if let's say the situation did happen, I did punch my wife. She hit me in the face. Like, okay, maybe that isn't a healthy relationship. Maybe you do need to get divorced. Maybe you figure out how to co-parent. And both of you go to therapy and work out your issues, right? To me, the reason that I would put this, I'm going to put this at a 10 as well. Because kind of like what we were talking about last week, where like a child, somebody that you've raised, somebody that you've cared for can do a heinous thing to a parent. This strikes the same way to me where, you know, you have children with this person and you're supposed to be a team and like she's working so you're home and again a common theme for me is I don't think that it's this guy freaked out and had a moment where he turned into a monster I think he was a monster who was pretending to be a normal human being and in that moment the monster came out like you said if it is an accident you're not like let me chop up her body let me dump her at this park. Let me, Oh, I'll grab my kid's sled so that way I can move her. Oh, I got to go back. So I don't get caught. Like these are thoughts of like, of a psychopath of a monster. Yeah. Like he took it too far. And that's what is the disgusting part. 
And then, we you know, we didn't talk too much about the sexual relationship in detail, how long that was going on with the au pair. But, like, there's a monster in his brain. He's had to have had similar situations, past relationships where he got aggressive. I'm sure if we really dove into who Stephen Grant was as as a teenager or a young adult, like, we would find other things where he had been angry. Because you don't just chop up your wife. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think there was something under the surface that he either knew and was pushing down or just decided to let itself come out in that moment. But premeditated or not, like you went through a whole lot of effort to hide the body. And I don't know. It's just stuff like that where, again, it's supposed to be somebody that you can trust, right? Like I'm gone in Puerto Rico for a week at a time and I'm leaving you home with my kids and you're capable of, you know, murdering somebody that you're supposed to love. And that's the other thing, too, is like, you know, with the relationship with the au pair, she's back in Germany. You know what I mean? So the only information that they're getting is from Stephen Grant and is what he wants to tell them. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, it's just nuts. Well, you did it, John. You did it. Ten for both of us. I mean, it's an awful case, but it was definitely the shock factor. So that is where this case falls on our deadbolt test. Olivia and I are tied. We're locked in. We are both giving it a 10. But we want to know, where does the disappearance of Tara Grant fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We're on Twitter at Check the Locks. Join our Facebook group. It is amazing. People in there, you know, I, I let them know, hey, I'm sorry we had to miss an episode last week. People were supportive, and it was messages of just love and appreciation and and it was felt really nice to be lifted up in that moment so just want to let everybody know thank you you have no idea how much that means to me and and how much it means to the show and and how much it means to olivia and we're just very grateful for all of you if you're not in our facebook group we're in there hanging out every single day pause the show go into the show notes the description click that link join we would love to hang out with you olivia I think we need to read a five-star review. This was a crazy case. I need something light. What do you think? Yeah, this is when we bring it back happy. So this week's five-star review comes from Die Hard Devils Fan. Um, And the subject title is Addicted. Love this podcast. I'm so happy I found it. I also love the Facebook group to discuss the episodes. The hosts play off each other well. The stories are told smoothly, and the stories they do are always interesting. One of my new favorites. So thank you, Die Hard Devils fan, for leaving us a five-star review. Yes, thank you, Devils fan, for leaving us that five-star review. I'm assuming you are talking about the New Jersey Devils. They rip. New Jersey is awesome. Home of Jay and Silent Bob, the Mafia, all things cool. So thank you for leaving us that five-star review. We would love to send you some swag. We have stickers. We have buttons. I think, Olivia, you've got some koozies that we're sending out. Make sure that you're letting us know. Hit us up on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod, Twitter, Check the Locks. Let us know if you're in the Facebook group. And if you're not a social person, that's cool. Head over to checkthelockspod.com, hit the email button, send us an email, let us know it was you, and we would love to send you some stuff. Olivia, if someone wants to have their five star review read on the show, what is the best way to do that? You need to go to the Apple Podcast app, scroll all the way to the bottom where you see the five stars click all five stars and write us a review and tell us what you love about check the locks podcast yes please do leave us that review we actually have a link in the description where you can go in it'll take you right to where you can rate it leave the review these reviews are super important because they're going to have us as a suggested show if someone's listening to like dateline or something like that 
It helps our audience grow. It helps our community grow. And it just means the world to us. Also, I mean, if you leave us a review, there's a chance that we'll read on the show. We'll send you some free stuff. So again, if you have taken the time to leave us a five-star review, it means so much to us. Thank you so much for doing that. And if not, head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave that review. Again, would truly mean so much. Olivia, this week before we close out the show, I got something special for you. What? We got a voicemail. Oh my gosh, a voicemail. You want to hear it? Yes. Finally, I've been asking week after week after week. Someone heard me. I just, I've been looking forward to say this. Let's go to the phones. Hey, John and Olivia, this is Britt from Cleveland, Ohio. Just wanted to stop in and tell you how amazing this podcast is. I stumbled on it by accident, and now I just can't get enough. I can't wait to hear what you have coming up for us next. Britt from Ohio, thank you for the voicemail, and we are so glad that you found the show. Olivia, are you just like smiling ear to ear right now? I forget you can't see me right now, but yes, I'm so excited. I need Britt to let us know where she lives in Cleveland, Ohio, so that I can send her some cool stuff because you left us a voicemail. You heard me. So happy you stumbled across our podcast and left me a voicemail. Well, it left us a voicemail, I should say. But Britt, let us know where you are so that we can send you some stuff. She did say, hey, John and Olivia, but I'm sure that you feel validated and that you feel heard and you feel seen. Yes, this is about me, John. And my love for the voicemails. And we'll just, we'll work it out every week. Like, you know, we do in therapy. Let's just, why do these voicemails <laughs> matter so much? So I don't know, but I like it. I like hearing people's voices. You know, we see what they have to say on the Facebook group. We read the reviews, but like just hearing our listeners and hearing, you know, that they're excited about our podcast just really makes me happy. Me too. And I think my favorite thing about that entire voicemail is that, you know, Britt is like, I don't know how I found you guys. I stumbled into the show. And that's from all of the members of our Facebook group, all the listeners who have left us a voicemail. That's how we get into those recommendations. That's how people find us. So, again, Britt, thank you for listening. Thank you for repping Ohio and leaving us the voicemail. And, and for all of our listeners who have left us a five-star review, thank you because that's just proof that, you know, it does help us grow the community. So, Olivia, this is episode two zero, 20 episodes down. Can you believe when we started back in May that we would be on 20 episodes? No, this is insane. I cannot believe we've done 20 episodes. It's been a it's been a rough summer. I feel like I have been sick all summer. So I apologize to the listeners, but I think we're hitting fall. Today's the first day of fall. In case y'all are wondering when we're recording. <laughs> Happy fall, y'all. It's like 98 degrees in New Orleans, so it's not really fall, but... 20 episodes. I think we've gotten our groove. I think we're figuring it out. We've got this great podcast family on the Facebook group and all of our listeners, and we couldn't be more grateful for you all. So thank you for sticking it out with us for 20 episodes. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah, 20 episodes down. We couldn't do it without the listeners. We wouldn't do it without the listeners. So thank you guys so much. (laughs) 20 down. Here's to another, you know, 200 plus more to, to go. And just want to say thank you guys so much. But that is it for this week's episode join us again next week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case but until then don't forget to check the locks see you next week